please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique, that's spelled S-A-I-V, is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there are always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options. Shop Pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to DoorKey listeners. Just enter the code DOORKEY, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Save Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount at checkout. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Save Boutique, that's S-A-I-V Boutique.com, has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello. This is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history. And I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello there. I have a bit of housekeeping to go over before the episode starts. It's about the pod's schedule. Since I started this pod, episodes of Dorky have been released weekly, but for the time being, episodes are going to be released bi-weekly, so every two weeks. I prefer the weekly schedule myself, and hopefully I'll get back to that eventually. But for now, you can expect a new episode every other Thursday. That's all the housekeeping I have, so let's get on with the episode. Before even starting this pod, I'd made the decision to steer clear from any sort of modern history. I really don't want to cover anything after the year 1970. It's just cleaner that way. And I don't feel like there's been enough time since the 70s to really put events and people that came after that into context anyway. But I have to break my own rule this episode to talk about the one and only Studio 54. I'm using the fact that the building officially opened in the 20s as a rationalization for doing this. And here's some more rationalization for you while I'm at it. I think you'll see that me talking about something that happened a few years after my cutoff is small potatoes when it comes to everything I'm going to be talking about in this episode. 
In 1927, the Gallo Opera House opened at 254 West 54th Street in the Midtown Manhattan neighborhood of New York City. Unfortunately, it went bankrupt within two years. It was renamed the New Yorker Theater in 1930. It was the Casino de Paris nightclub from December 1933 to April 1935 and was briefly the Palladium Music Hall in early 1936. The Federal Music Project took over the theater in 1937 and presented shows there for three years. CBS began using the theater as a soundstage called Radio Playhouse No. 4 in 1942. When television broadcasts began in 1949, the theater was renamed Studio 52. Side note, the building had two entrances, one on 52nd Street and one on 54th Street. That's where the numbers in the name come from. CBS sold the building to Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager in 1976, who planned to turn it into a nightclub. Steve was 33 and Ian was 30. When Steve and Ian bought the building, a lot of theatrical and broadcasting equipment came with it. There were a lot of theaters in the area Studio 54 was in, so that meant there were a lot of creative people around. Steve and Ian were able to hire several people to help them create and design the club. These included an architect, an interior designer, lighting designers, and a set designer. Using the skills and knowledge they had developed working for theaters, this group built a dance floor, a balcony, and a disco booth, as well as the addition of mirrors, light bars, and floating vinyl platforms. The overall theater structure of the building was kept. The orchestra section was big enough for 250 people, and the balcony had another 500 seats. The lighting system, which required three people to operate, included a dozen 16-foot-high, that's 4.9 meters, holes with flashing lights. The existing rigging system was adapted to generate several special effects, such as confetti, snow, fog, and weather. On the ceiling was a 30 by 40 foot, that's 9.1 by 12.2 meters, cyclorama, which could project images of many different galaxies. Other decorations included depictions of volcanoes, sunrises, and sunsets. I hope I'm conveying the sense of ostentation and grandeur all this created, because over the top doesn't begin to describe it. And I mean that in the best, most complimentary way possible. A backlit moon and spoon, which became an icon of the Studio 54 nightclub, was designed by Aereo Graphics. The club's promoters mailed out 8,000 invitations and made phone calls to many people that were on, quote, a good social list. Studio 54 officially opened on April 26, 1977, with workers rushing to finish the decorations just hours before the grand opening. This first night was very successful. Although the club could fit 2,500 guests, 4,000 people attended the club on opening day. Hundreds of people lined up around the block to enter, and there were even several celebrities that couldn't get in, despite having been invited. While it seems that having a great public relations team helped Studio 54 become so successful, it also helped that it opened during the peak of the disco trend. 
So not only was it cool to go to a disco, but Studio 54 became the disco to go to. In the month after its opening, the club served an average of 2,000 guests per night, although it was only open on Tuesdays through Saturdays. The club made $7 million in its first year. I know that's a lot of money, but that's 1977 money. Today, that would be almost $34.5 million. That number is impressive already, but it's particularly amazing to me when you realize that Studio 54 didn't have a liquor license when it opened. What they would do to get around that is apply for a, quote, caterer's permit every day. Those permits were technically meant for one-time events like weddings, but they allowed Studio 54 to serve alcohol. The club also didn't have a certificate of occupancy or a public assembly license. They were able to operate like this for almost a month before they were raided by the New York State Liquor Authority for selling liquor without a license. They reopened the next night and served only fruit juice and soda instead of alcohol. They kept serving only non-alcoholic drinks until a New York Supreme Court justice stepped in and ordered the liquor authority to grant them a liquor license that October. The license was granted, but the agency's chairman wasn't happy about it and claimed that the judge only ordered the license be granted because of the club's rich and famous clientele. This went all the way to the New York Court of Appeals, which upheld the decision in June of 1978. So, what was it that made Studio 54 so successful? They had an amazing public relations team, for sure, but it was more than that. For one, pretty much every famous person of the day showed up to Studio 54. Okay, I'm exaggerating here, but not by much. I'm not going to list all the famous people that went to this disco, but that list is long and full of A-listers. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If I could go spend time at a place where there was a chance that both Andy Warhol and Cher might just casually show up on the same night, I absolutely would. Wouldn't you? But Studio 54 didn't just have famous people on their dance floor. They did allow regular people in there as well. But they were very, very choosy about which of all the regular people waiting to get into the club they actually allowed in. To be admitted into Studio 54 was a status symbol. According to a 1977 Wall Street Journal article, quote, very beautiful members of the public were almost always admitted. This choosiness of who they let in wasn't kept a secret and was actually part of Studio 54's mystique. The club had an infamous red velvet rope that was used to let people in, but was mostly used to keep people out. One of the owners, Steve Rubell, even bragged about the club's exclusivity, saying in a November 1977 interview with the New York Magazine, I turned away 1,400 people last Saturday. How desperate were people to get into Studio 54? Rubell once told who he described as a, quote, ravishingly beautiful woman that she could enter for free if she took off all her clothes. The woman complied and was later hospitalized for frostbite. One potential guest got stuck in a ventilation shaft trying to sneak in and died. On several occasions, would-be guests attacked the doorman after being denied admission, and several guests pulled out guns when they were rejected. Being famous didn't even guarantee entry. The band Chic wrote a song in 1978, Live Freak, 
after being refused entry to the club on New Year's Eve 1977, despite having been invited by Grace Jones. Once the lyrics were changed from the original Fuck <coughs> Off to Freak Out, the song became a huge hit. Studio 54 didn't allow photography inside the club to protect guests' privacy, but some pictures from inside were taken and released by the club's PR team and published. So yeah, they didn't have this term for it yet back then, but one of Studio 54's secrets to success was the sense of FOMO, the fear of missing out, that was created by all of this. So now the question is, if by some miracle you did manage to get into Studio 54, did it live up to all the hype? What was it like in there? The Washington Post wrote in November 1977 that the club attracted, quote, a mix of punks, hairdressers, socialites, and suburbanites, while the New York Times said the club was, quote, tolerant of errant squares. Andy Warhol described it as, quote, a dictatorship on the door, but a democracy on the dance floor. It was wild in there. Once inside, due to its exclusivity and privacy, celebrities and regular people alike felt free to be themselves without judgment. Kind of like a what happens at Studio 54 stays at Studio 54 kind of thing. Studio 54 was also frequented by many gay celebrities, which led to it being described by one person as, quote, one of the single most effective showcases for newly visible gay clout, something that I personally love. In my research, I read an article about Studio 54 that said, quote, they prioritized queer and transgender people for entry. They wanted the space to be filled with people who were interesting and different, not just the boring and rich. Transgender women of color were welcomed and celebrated in the club and made to feel safe. So things were going great for Studio 54. It was the place to go and be seen at, and the club was making money hand over fist. Then, the bottom dropped out. In December 1978, the IRS got a tip that Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager were skimming profits from the club. The tip came from an ex-employee who also alleged that drugs were illegally being stored in the basement. The IRS raided the club and took their bookkeeping records. They also found drugs at the club. A lot of drugs. They found cocaine and quaaludes, which... I know. I was just as shocked by that as you are. Steve and Ian were arrested and eventually indicted for tax evasion and possession. The two men had skimmed two and a half million dollars. And again, that's a lot of money, but that figure is in 1970s money. That's about eleven and a half million dollars in today's money. In a strange thickening of this plot, trying to lessen their charges, Steve and Ian's lawyer alleged that a man named Hamilton Jordan, who was U.S. President at the time, Jimmy Carter's chief of staff, had used drugs in the club's basement. Yes, Studio 54 was so big and well-known that the owner's attorney tried to bring the President of the United States chief of staff into this case. Steve and Ian pled guilty to tax evasion in November 1979. In exchange, federal prosecutors agreed not to charge the men with obstruction of justice and conspiracy. 
By this point, though, the club was in danger of losing its liquor license, since the liquor authority didn't allow convicted felons to have a liquor license. Steve and Ian were each sentenced to three and a half years in prison in January 1980. They had a huge party at the club right before they started their sentences, Diana Ross and Liza Minnelli sang. Ultimately, Steve and Ian were paroled after a year. The Liquor Authority unanimously voted not to renew Studio 54's liquor license the next month. The club was allowed to stay open, but they had to go back to serving non-alcoholic drinks. It was also announced that a board of directors would be created to run the club, but the damage had been done. There was a major decline in business, and Studio 54 closed down at the end of that March. By early the next month, it was sold to Mark Fleischman. Studio 54 remained closed for the rest of the year, mostly because former owners Steve and Ian kept things tied up in court over the club's liquor license being taken away when they owned it. A liquor license couldn't be granted as long as the club was involved in active litigation. The club did host a few alcohol-free private events on the weekends, though. Mark was able to finally get the liquor license. It was only granted on the condition that former owners Steve and Ian not be involved with the club in any way. He also repainted the inside, changed the light fixtures, and paid the state of New York $250,000 of back taxes that were owed. Again, that's 1970s money. That amount today would be just over $900,000. Once all of that was taken care of, new managers were hired, and Studio 54 was able to reopen to the public on September 15, 1981. Mark and his partner, Jeffrey London, mailed out 12,000 invitations for the reopening, the invitations were delivered on 25-watt silver light bulbs. At first, the club hosted what they called Modern Classics Nights during Wednesdays and Sundays, while it hosted disco music for the remainder of the week. There was also a 32-track recording studio in the basement, which was used for recording promotional videos and rock concerts. Within three months of the club's reopening, Mark fired the new managers he'd hired. Then things got murky. In 1982, the social activist Jerry Rubin started hosting what were called, quote, business networking salons, which were networking events for business people at the club on Wednesday nights. Guests were only admitted if they had a business card. These events quickly became popular, often having 1,500 guests. For other events, Studio 54 implemented an invitation system which meant that events could be restricted to select guests without having to turn people away at the door. The club's mailing list had 200,000 names on it by 1984. In 1984, Studio 54 also hosted special musical performances, but the club was losing business to other clubs, including one called The Palladium, which former Studio 54 owners Steve and Ian opened after being released from prison. Studio 54 was also facing several lawsuits from high-profile guests. Mark Fleischman filed for bankruptcy in November 1985, and the club closed in April 1986 because it couldn't get liability insurance due to all the lawsuits. Studio 54 had another new owner, Shalom 
twice. But even a new owner couldn't return Studio 54 to its glory days. People who lived in the area complained about fights that were happening outside the club, and city officials revoked the club's cabaret license for two years in January of 1989 because of the rampant drug use of the employees and guests. The club was also letting people as young as 13 in and was falsely advertising itself as selling alcoholic drinks. After all this, the owners of the Ritz nightclub moved into the spot Studio 54 was once in. The Ritz was mostly a rock club, but also had performances of pop music and salsa music as well. It was successful for a while, but in July of 1993, the Ritz announced it would be closing and reopened as a topless bar. It was remodeled, the Studio 54 name was trademarked, which had never before been properly registered, and in January of 1994, opened as Cabaret Royale at Studio 54. The Cabaret Royale at Studio 54 closed in 1995. The next people who bought the place wanted to convert the space into a virtual reality gaming venue, but that didn't happen due to lack of interest. The club's space was rented out for private events. In 1998, the nonprofit Roundabout Theater Company opened Studio 54 as a Broadway theater called Roundabout Theater at Studio 54. It's changed hands as to who was running it, and it's had some renovations, but it's basically been a theater since then and still has the same name. It did have to close for a year because of COVID, but it's reopened since. As for Steve and Ian, the two men who opened Studio 54 back in the 70s, well, I'm very sad to say that Steve passed away in 1989 from AIDS. Ian became, and still is, a very successful hotelier. So that's the story of Studio 54. It started out as a theater, then was a TV studio, then a club, before it became a theater again. When Steve and Ian decided to open Studio 54, they spoke to and worked with people from the area who were involved in the theater community to come up with ideas for and design of what would become one of, if not the, most successful clubs ever. In my opinion, it's the open-mindedness and free-spiritedness of the theater community that led to the, well, the original spirit of Studio 54. There was something very special Studio 54 captured in its heyday, which, by the way, only lasted like three years. It's why it's still talked about almost 50 years after Steve and Ian left. All of that to say that I think it's very fitting that things have come full circle to the space becoming an actual theater again. Talk to you again in two weeks. Some of the sources I used for this episode, GQ, Vanity Fair, New York Times, and Wikipedia. I also got tons of pictures, which I'll be sharing on the pod's Instagram and in the pod's Facebook group. So if you haven't joined those yet, you're going to want to so you don't miss them because these pictures are amazing. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. 
Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow. But more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. <laughs>